Welcome to this episode of the Langefem podcast. My guest today is Andrea Alvisi, a translator and interpreter from Italy whose talents go beyond the written and spoken word. And that's because he's a self-professed foodie. We'll talk about that today as well. Uh, hello, Andrea. Come stai? Hello. Tutto bene, grazie. Um, ha very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, but I'm afraid that's that's all the Italian I can muster. Uh, it, it, what it's I okay. just said. <laughs> it, it's fine. <laughs> okay, so you're joining us from Leeds today, but you're actually from Italy. Where in Italy are you from, Andrea? Um, correct, yes. I am originally from the area around Bologna. The, I come from, well, to show you my real foodie roots, I come from the area where Parmesan cheese is from, balsamic vinegar and Ferrari cars, which is clearly not something that you eat, but it's still produced and manufactured in the area that I come from. That's right. Is it Maranello? Uh, yes, not not far from there. Yes. Okay, that's that's about what I remembered from the Formula One races when I <laughs> I used to watch them with my dad when I was a kid. All ah, right. Okay. <laughs> I don't anymore. I don't, I'm not following it anymore. Yeah, and uh, you also studied in Bologna. Um, well, it's the University of Bologna. However, I actually went to Forlì, which is a separate branch, still belonging to the University of Bologna, but. Um, they have a separate school for translators and interpreters in Forlì. Forlì, for those of you who, not, who are not familiar with geography of Italy, still in the same region, so still in Emilia-Romagna, but a little bit towards the sea. So let's say about one and a half hours from Bologna, to give you an idea. It definitely sounds like a very nice place to um, study. It's okay. I wouldn't necessarily define it as the place to be, simply because it tends to be a little bit dead. Um, okay. I was always amazed by how you would not find anyone around on a Saturday afternoon, even at 3 um, p.m., where, you know, at least in Italy, you're supposed to be going around, showing everyone the new clothes that you bought. And yet, exactly. Yes, and yet that wasn't the case in Forlì, so that always le left me a little bit baffled. Um, but fair enough. It's, um, <laughs> it's okay, I guess. It's a nice place, yes. Yeah, I see. Um, And I saw um, on your website that you studied Russian, which I didn't know you have Russian, actually, because I studied Russian, too. But uh, I was a bit surprised to, I don't know why, actually, thinking about it, but that you studied Russian in, in Bologna. But uh, you did. I did, yes. Um, when, well, long story short, when I started the university that I did in my undergraduate, I wanted originally to just study languages. I wasn't interested in pursuing a career in translation or interpreting. And Russian was the most exotic language on offer back then. So I decided to go with English, which I had already done in high school, in high school, and to just take on whatever the weirdest language that I could find. And Russian obviously fit the bill. So it's I, a good choice, yeah. Yes, yes, I really like it. So um, I'm actually quite happy that I chose Russian and not Arabic, for instance, or anything else. That's right. Um, so you just... Well, just you chose Russian because it was exotic. You didn't. You, did you have any idea what it would be like, or uh, it just was exotic and that was good enough for you? Which is fine. I mean. Yes, pretty much. I think at the time I was just going for something which would potentially uh, give me a bit of an advantage on the um, on the job market, um, independently of whether I was working in the translation industry or not. And I thought that by mastering a language which was considered weird, if you want or exotic, um, that would have given me a competitive advantage, you know, against anyone else. Um, I probably didn't really know what I was putting myself up for. 
Um, no idea that he had a completely different alphabet and no idea about how complicated the grammar would be. Um, but I have to say that I still quite like it, um, even five days in. So I'm still mm. quite happy about the decision I made. But you, you decided nonetheless to go for um, a translation or an interpreting-based uh, BA, not just languages. Did you find that difficult? Because you, you started Russian from scratch, basically. Yes. Um, so what I did is I had English as my first foreign language, then Russian as my second foreign language, and I also took some exams with French. Um, because at, a, um, in, at high school I had studied English, French, and German. Well, but please don't test my German knowledge because it's, <laughs> no, <probably, I> <laughs> it's probably very basic. Um, and um, yes, it was very hard, especially with Russian, because if with English you start from a consolidated base, if you want, um, you, you already know how to say a few things. With Russian, we were starting from scratch and we did translation in and out of Russian and interpreting in and out of Russian as well with Italian, yeah. obviously. Um, so obviously we started with very easy scenarios like I'll go to the doctors and I'll ask to get some pills or I go to the restaurant and order a few dishes. Um, but on the last year we already moved into um, liaison interpreting because that was the only type of interpreting you could do in your BA. Um, liaison interpreting in a business and or trade settings. Um, so anything could come up really. But yeah. obviously it wasn't at the same level as our English and um, the teachers knew and they weren't expecting miracles, but um, they were sure. trying to bridge the gap in between the two languages throughout the three years. Yeah, but I think the liaison interpreting, especially with Russian, would probably the, would be the mode of interpreting that you would use on the Italian market, I, I suppose? Um, yes, there's a lot of work, I have to say, with Russian, um, or at least with Russians um, in Italy. Um, not as much in the UK, and especially because in the UK it tends to be obviously between English and Russian. But we do have, or we used to have, between before the sanctions were put into place, a lot of um, trade links with Russia, and we like each other, and our former Prime Minister Berlusconi had close ties with Putin, so it was... Um, there were some, um, a lot of business negotiations and conferences taking place in Italy with Russians. So it was a good language to choose at the time. Um, obviously, then I changed the place where I live and everything else. But yeah. I know of colleagues who have um, studied Russian as well, and they do work a lot. I wonder if you get to practice your Russian from time to time, where, are you in, where you are now in, in the UK? Because, I mean, there's that cliche that there are so many Russians. <laughs> I mean, especially in London, but uh, I don't know if you have any, if you have any contact to them. Or... Um, I have, obviously, I spent some time in Russia during my, during my um, second um, year abroad um, with the Erasmus Plus program, so outside the European Union. And I made some friends, and I do still occasionally exchange messages with them in order to just check how we're doing. However, it's usually very basic conversations. We don't really discuss the war in Iraq or the, the new conflicts in the Middle East and so forth. Um, I do read a lot with Russian, but I will be taking some Russian classes as of this year, in fact, to try and keep it up because I understand it's a language I don't use on a daily basis and I am slowly um, losing it. And it's a bit of a pity, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work to keep it up, but I think it's it's actually easier because I had, I'd studied Russian as well mm -hmm. when I was in university and then didn't use it for years. And I'm now slowly getting back into it. And um, 
I think the grammar and everything, you, you don't really lose that when you've learned it properly, and I suppose you did. But especially the, the listening comprehension and that, that kind of thing, that, that yeah. tends to go away, uh, away very quickly, and that's the amount yeah, of, very difficult. The amount of words as well, I think, I find, especially because yes. <laughs> some of them are completely different from everything else that you might know yeah. in terms of language knowledge, and uh, you just tend to forget them. But anyway. Yeah. But you spent six months, right, in uh, Kaliningrad? Correct, yes. They have a university for languages, or did you do something completely different? Um, again, when I chose when where to go on my um, second year abroad, I chose the place that nobody wanted to go to in Kaliningrad. <laughs> apparently, fit the bill. Um, yeah. Kaliningrad or Königsberg, um, depending on whatever name you want to go, it's that little enclave of Russian territory which is right above Poland, next mm. to um, to Lithuania, and. They have a university with a really good course in translation and interpreting. They do both BA and MA. Um, so I actually trained in consecutive and simultaneous between Russian and English while I was there, um, which is something that um, obviously for me it was something somehow new because I went straight from my BA, my last year at my, in my BA where we were doing mostly liaison, a little bit of chuchotage, but that was only with English to being put in a booth and doing consec um, with no pre prior training because obviously I joined random classes depending on the availability of the teachers. Sure. Um, and I really liked it, so I think that also played in favour of then doing an MA in conference interpreting. Um, it's all just building and building up, I think, throughout time. And how did you, how did you like the city? Can you, is it, I don't know, is it, have you been to any other city in, in Russia? Can you, can you compare it? Or what did, what did it feel like? Um, of all the cities that I've been to in Russia, and I did travel a little bit because I had a really big bursary and I said, well, I, I'm here now and I don't know when I'll be back, so I might as well just... Might as well it. use it, yeah. Exactly, take advantage. Um, I fell in love with St. Petersburg. I think it's... Especially because I went during winter and mm. when everything is covered in snow, I think the fact that every single building is coloured stands out even more dramatically yes. and uh, yes. it's just a beautiful city and while it is one of the biggest cities in Russia it's still very small at least the city centre so you, you can easily walk from one end to the other in about 45 minutes one hour and people are so friendly I thought especially if compared with Moscow which I found very chaotic very capital like both in terms of mindset and in terms of attitude um, mm. and not as enjoyable as I would have liked. Kaliningrad is very European, possibly because it is on the border with Europe more than any other Russian city. Um, however, once you step outside the real city centre, you do come across the traditional Soviet um, concrete buildings and old houses and mm. you know old cars and so forth. So I, I did like it. I thought it was... Um, a good way for me to maybe not have a massive cultural shock, um, which people good always point. talk about when they go to Russia for the first time, because it was somewhere in between Europe and Russia. Um, yeah. But I did travel around Russia, so if you want, I did experience the cultural shock, and I survived. So <laughs> You're here to tell I the I am tale. here, yes. <laughs> That's great. But you, but you said um, that the studying there sort of confirmed for you that you would continue with the MA, which you then did um, in Leeds, at the University yes. of Leeds. I wanted to go back to the UK because I had done my Erasmus in Warwick, which is 
around Coventry, and I had fallen in love with UK. Um, in Italy, we have a very romantic idea of the UK as a country in terms of the language, in terms of people, in terms of mm -hmm. um, fashion and culture and freedom and so forth. And I think that I probably fell um, under that spell at the time. Um, I'm saying that at the time because I am, you know, slowly <laughs> realizing that it's not all... I mean, I'm taking off my rose tinted spectacles, if you want, and seeing things as they truly are. But that's what... Sure, once you live there, I mean, you exactly have Exactly, that, yeah, that's what happens yeah. with time. Um, but at the time, I really wanted to go back to the UK. And of all DMAs in conference interpreting offered in the UK, Leeds was the one that was best placed in terms of, first of all, offering Italian, because I had considered other MAs, but they weren't training Italian native speakers. And secondly, because of the position, I didn't want to go to London because it would have been massively expensive. So I yeah. thought that if I moved somewhere in the north, um, that would have been slightly better in terms of you know, expenses more than anything else. And Leeds has... Especially as a student. Yes, yes. You don't have much money. I had to pay for it myself. So I worked throughout the summer and so forth. And, um, and also Leeds has an excellent reputation, still has anyway. So um, I decided to go for that one instead. And you liked it that much that you stayed on after your uh, degree because you're, you're, te you're teaching? I am, now. yes. I am one of the um, teaching fellows in interpreting. Um, I have been for the last two years. Um, first year I was doing something else and, and teaching and now I'm pretty much dedicating myself to teaching and freelancing. Um, yes, I think when I finished the master, I definitely didn't want to go back to Italy for many reasons. Unemployment, um, I had, you know, kind of landed somewhere in the UK and I wanted to stay here. Um, I met my current partner. So it was a lot of a lot of reasons that why I didn't want to go back to Italy and I wanted to stay um, in the UK. Leeds was just an easy choice um, because I was already here. I already had a flat. I found a full-time job straight after my master's. Um, so I decided to, to stay here. But, um, but that was for yeah reasons of comfort, if you want, more than anything else. Yeah, but I mean, there were quite good reasons, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So you started working for a, for a translation. Uh, was it an agency or a, a um, big well, service provider? Before that, I actually spent two years in a um, manufacturing company working oh. one year in... Yeah, it's not in my profile. That's why you probably weren't aware of it. Um, I worked for one year in a um, trade desk. It was a call center, really. I had to sell what the company was producing to the Italian market. Mm -hmm. And for the following year, I asked to be moved because I realized that doing sales and cold calls wasn't for me. Um, I liaised with the UK installers and called them on a daily basis, again, working from a call center and managing their stock. So I was working in the logistics department. So mm -hmm. I spent two years in this company and then I worked as an in-house translator for about, about a year. And there you, you translated basically anything that would come your way, or did they, did they have a specialization? They had um, different verticals. So they had marketing, um, technical, then they had the public sector, to, um, science, um, biology, and so forth. And they had specific clients belonging to the various uh, verticals. Um, obviously, I was the primary point of contact for anything that would, needed to be translated in or proofread into Italian. Italian, yeah. Um, so I was always contacted first um, before any of the other freelancers, um, unless the client already had a preferred supplier, in which case they would go to the freelancer and maybe ask me to do the proofreading. 
Um, they had specific clients and I found myself not liking one client in particular because of the process that they had implemented in order to get the translations approved. And they were using a tailor-made cat tool, which wasn't really a cat tool, and then you needed to do 7,000 checks. And it would take me three times the amount of time it would take me normally, so I just asked to be exonerated from working for that client. But everything else, I would do it because, um, I mean, I was fully employed and I was expected to anyway. Yeah. And then you make the switch at some point to become a freelancer. Is that very complicated in the UK? Is, does it involve a lot of paperwork? Well, I was already a freelancer. I set myself as a freelancer as soon as I finished my MA. So okay. I actually carried out... There was a moment in time when I was working as an in-house translator where I was actually juggling between three jobs. Um, in-house translator, um, teaching, interpreting at university and looking after my somehow maimed freelance career at the time. Um, so it's not difficult. I think it's probably one of the... The UK is probably one of the easiest countries where you can actually set yourself up as a freelancer. All you need to do is register for tax purposes and do your tax returns once a year. But other than that, it's very easy. You don't need a VAT number unless you're earning over a certain threshold, which is not the case for me, and it's not the case for the majority of the freelancers anyway. And um, there's a very supportive network of translators and interpreters uh, uh, all over the country um, belonging to various professional associations and groups. So finding advice is not as difficult as you might imagine. Um, so yeah, it was actually quite easy, I have to say. Um, I have a friend as well which, who works as a financial advisor and he helped me with the accounting, he still does. Um, which saves it's useful. Me, yes, it saves have me the money. Like actually, that. yes, yeah. I don't need. I don't need an accountant. I've got a friend. I can do it. Yeah, um, exactly. So yeah, that that was pretty much it. I think. But you seem to be um, pretty well set up in in the UK in terms of professional associations. Um, that's the impression I get, at least. Um, so you're a member of the of the ITI, correct? Um, and then they have, uh, I suppose, regional groups. Um, which in your case is Yorkshire, right? That's yes. so, uh, do, do you have like regular meetings or do you, do you have dinner together sometimes? Um, they do. They organize both um, social events and um, CPD events. I mm. tend to go mostly to the CPD events because I don't have time to go to all of the socials they organize. Um, I, especially this, year, this past year has been quite crazy for me, what with university and everything else. And I found myself coming, they mostly organized them at weekends. I found myself wanting to just sit in silence at the weekend to just relax yeah. um, after a busy week and listening to people constantly interpreting. Um, so I, that might change now that I'm cutting down my hours at university and going back more on the, on the freelance market. Um, but um, I also want to be moving around the country. So I'm also a member of the, still within the ITI of the Italian group. Um, which is very active, but in the south of England. So they, they do a lot of events, um, they have um, a lot of dinners and so forth, but they do mostly around the London area. Um, I'm also a member of the um, IAPTI, um, so International Association of Professional Translators and Interpreters, that's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and a member of um, AITI, the, um, International the Italian sorry, the Italian, Associ yeah. Association of Translators and Interpreters. Um, so I would like to potentially start going to the socials organized by events, let's not call them socials, organized by all of them, um, yeah. which obviously might mean that I need to 
maybe not attend every single one organized by one specific one, but then, you know, diversify. Yes. Mm. Do you go to conferences often? Uh, because most of the professional associations usually also organize uh, like a yearly conference or a, uh, every uh, two years. Yeah, for, for lack of time more than anything else, the ITI yeah. conference, which happened quite recently, was the first one that I ever, ever attended. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I will probably attend more in the future. I know the um, I know IAPT has an upcoming one in uh, in Bordeaux, I believe, in France. Yeah. Um, but I won't be able to make it for um, work commitments. So um, I usually need to plan them very well in advance. Uh, but yes, I am planning to attend more in the future. Um, I wanted to get into your specializations as well because that yeah. that sounded quite interesting. There were a few sort of standards, if, if you allow, <laughs> like marketing, you know, or uh, user manuals. But how did you get into the uh, online apps and games thing? I didn't recognize all of the apps and I didn't recognize the games because I'm not much of a gamer, but uh, it, it's very interesting. Um, well, partly it was during my time as an, um, as an in-house um, where we had, a, they had a, a provider of games, well, a software developer, if you want, that constantly created new games and all of these games needed to be translated. And partly because at the time as well, as a, um, a freelancer, I was working for an agency that supplied uh, many apps and game developers. Um, so I would do the localization of their interface. Um, I have to say I don't work with, in that field as much now. Um, mm. I have moved towards different things. I have a very mixed background, meaning that I usually work in a specific specific field for a while and then move to a different one for another while and ca carrying through pretty much the marketing and technical all the way through, meaning that they are the ones that I usually work in most. But um, I am kind of proud to, uh, to have helped gay men in Italy to interact by translating the Italian interface of Grindr or... Um, having translated script and other big names, yeah. which, I mean, it's it's good experience, I think. Yeah, definitely. And you've done some subtitling as well. Was that um, into Italian? Did you, did you subtitle yes. into Italian? Yes. I currently work for another agency which provides um, uh, translation, if you want, and localization for Yahoo. So mm -hmm. everything that appears on the Italian page, Yahoo Cinema... Um, I have probably translated and or proofread. Um, in terms of the... That's a nice thing to be able to say, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, yes. It's quite, quite amazing, I think. Um, it all happened by pure chance, as it's normally yeah. the case. Um, yeah. But um, I have become one of the favorite suppliers. So it's um, all the interviews with the actors, they need to be subtitled. Um, when there's a new film coming up, let's think of Mission Impossible, for instance, they would do interviews and cameos and features with the actors and they all need subtitling or there's um, maybe there's new X movies coming up and um, they might have interviewed the director because he might have uh, been asked um, things by um, fans all over the world so that needs to be subtitled and all of the feature articles that are part of the marketing package of each movie of each movie they need to be translated as well so I will help with that too. Um, so it's it's quite varied, um, but the subtitling mostly refers to um, interviews with directors, actors, um, mm. people working behind the scenes, and so forth. 
That sounds quite interesting because I have a good friend. Um, she's a translator and she used to work in subtitling or still does, I'm not sure. And she's, they sometimes had to um, do subtitling for live events. I don't know if that technically is subtitling. But uh, sometimes she had to go through hours and hours of terrible, like MTV events or, yeah. you know, yeah. the yeah. thing that you don't really watch after you're 12. Or, um, yeah, but yours, yours sounded far more interesting <laughs> anyway. Well, it's, it depends. I think it's cool, if you want, from a certain point of view, because you do get to see the trailers and the interviews with actors before they are published anywhere else. Oh, yeah. um, so I am bound by confidentiality um, mm. for that reason. But at the same time, you get to translate articles and and blog posts about movies that you don't really care about and yeah. movies that clearly are not up your street. Um, <laughs> the really girly comedies, for instance, I might not be very inclined to watch. Um, I might be more interested in maybe Mission Impossible or one of the X-Men movies. Um, but I, nevertheless, I still need to do it because obviously it's part of my job. Um, so you do get to maybe test yourself and your patience, I think, at times, um, when you do read feature articles about, um, what was it, um, something like the, uh, the 10 best ways to get a boyfriend. Um, and oh, that kind of thing, yeah. Yes, it's a very, it's, sometimes they are very gossipy and very girly, but because they are part of a specific marketing campaign aimed at a specific um, you know, slice of the population, so they they need to be, and obviously, then it's quite a challenge sometimes because I need to put myself in the shoes of a fifteen-year-old girl, and uh, That's a challenge. It would be for me, though. Yeah, well, of course it is, and translate accordingly. So then you need to watch the language you use, the um, the style and terminology, and so forth. So it, it is quite interesting, even though it's not the type of material that I would like to do on a daily basis. Yeah, um, you you've had some voluntary work as well um, on your website, and one of those was um, TED, the TED talks. Yes, was that subtitling as well? So would you do Italian subtitles for those talks? Yes, um, I it's something that I did a while ago, um, but I do occasionally contribute. Um, and yes, it would have been translating the subtitles for specific talks or proofreading the, the translation. I am more involved with Amnesty International simply because they do have more regular requests. If you wanted to have a pool of translators which is somehow limited and they rotate, because in order to become an Amnesty International translator you need to pass an exam, um, oh, okay. a, tra a translation exam. So then they only have a limited pool of um, freelancers that they rely on and they rotate um, regularly. Um, so I do get regular emails from them. The other ones um, that I've listed on my website, I work for, but on an okay, on, not on a regular basis, occasionally mm. and whenever they contact me. Um, I was interested in Translators Without Borders because I, I think I listened to an interview with the lady who founded mm -hmm. uh, the initiative. Um, can, you, can you tell us a bit more about um, what they do and what kind of translation work they do? Um, I... In terms of my involvement, most of the um, texts that I have translated for them um, belong to the, um, the International Red Cross Association. Okay. So they do provide translation for um, NG on behalf, let's put it that way, of NGOs and um, associations who do not have um, the um, economic availability to actually pay for the service. And yeah. in doing so, they provide some sort of 
a benevolent service to these associations. There are, it obviously is voluntary work, so you are putting up your time and you're not paid, but you do know that you are um, helping someone to communicate by working, by translating whatever text they send to you. So I mostly did um, guidelines issued by the International Red Cross on um, managing, for instance, um, outbreaks, disease outbreaks, um, or I worked for, I did some texts um, which related to disabled access to stadia during football mm-hmm. events. Um, it can be very varied, and that's also something to be into, you know, that I enjoy. Um, and um, I like the fact that, more or less in the same way as with Amnesty International, you are helping someone um, that doesn't necessarily have the means to afford the translation um, to yeah. actually to communicate with people, with stakeholders um, that speak a different language. So would it be fair to say that Translators Without Borders is a bit like an agency, but for voluntary translation work? Um, I guess so, from a certain perspective, if you want. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't want to commit too much, but... Um, okay, no, that's it, fine. Yeah, I think, I think you could consider it that way. They do have NGOs more than anything else that contact them directly, and then they have their own portal and you get notifications and you need to kind of book yourself for the job. So you could mm. consider them a somehow a um, voluntary translation agency. I see. Okay. Now to slowly move on to the other topic that I wanted to talk about with you. Uh, you were involved with a book translation project, um, and the book was called Willie's Chocolate Factory Cookbook. Um, yes. <laughs> I checked it on Amazon, um, and I... I got very hungry straight away. Uh, can you tell us a bit how this, how you became involved with this project? Right. My translation for this book, which is an amazing book, by the way. Um, it looks like it. Definitely. It is. It's, um, it's pretty much just the um, three quarters of the book are dedicated to the amazing journey that this guy, so Willie Harcourt Coops, has done in order to source the best cocoa that he could potentially from Venezuela and um, make chocolate in Venezuela and then sell it on the UK market. Um, and we are talking, when he did this, it was a time when Cadbury was more or less the only chocolate that you could find on the UK shelves, um, supermarket shelves. So he tried to bring the real cocoa in the UK. And I think it's a very ambitious project. Um, and he has created um, a very niche product, a very expensive product that you would only find in very high-end supermarket chains. Um, so what happened here is that uh, as part of my NA conference interpreting at the University of Leeds, um, I had to take a, an extended translation summer project. And I needed to choose a text to translate from Italian into English and one from English into Italian. So for the one from English into Italian, all I did, because I wanted something that related to food and chocolate, was walking into a bookshop and picking up the first book that I found that, that, that somehow intrigued me for whatever reason, checked that it hadn't been previously translated and translated, selected um, excerpts from it. Um, so that's what I did. For, that, that, that was my project. I translated part of this book, um, which on top of the overall story of this guy and what he did and what he didn't also includes a section with recipes at the end. Yeah. Um, and I think this was also the very first time that I've seen chocolate being used in savoury dishes. 
So omelets with chocolate or chocolate used mm. with, on minced meat. Sorry, I'm making you hungry, am I? Yes, uh, <laughs> but that's all right. And uh, or lasagna with chocolate, and it was uh, it was eye opening on so many levels um, oh. because it um, well on top of having to translate it and trying to bridge the various cultural gaps. Obviously, it was written for a UK from a UK audience. Um, I was finding out about a completely new world that I ignored the, the existence of. Um, so it was very intriguing on many levels and for many reasons, let's put it that way. Yeah, you just alluded to that. Um, that was probably also the idea of the project to, to find out about the cultural differences in in cookbooks in English and in Italian. I mean, apart from having to convert the units, maybe, did, did you find any particular challenges in bringing this across to the Italian audience? Um, I think the major differences will probably be sometimes in the type of ingredients used. Um, and I see that because I regularly read cooking um, magazines and cooking cookbooks in Italian as well. And I do like to look at the differences. So obviously the type of flour is different. Um, in mm -hmm. Italy we use um, sometimes finer flour. The sugar is a massive uh, problem because um, there are something like ten different types of caster sugar or similar sugar in the UK and in Italy we only have one type. Um, obviously it depends on how refined the sugar is and so forth but that, no, that doesn't necessarily um, exist in a different language or, you, or in Italian or you might have to explain it and so forth. Um, the types of cream as well um, which do not necessarily um, have an equivalent in Italian so it, I, ha I think it mostly related to the ingredients more than anything else. Okay. Um, and uh, the techniques are more or less the same. What you call the scrambled eggs, we have the equivalent in Italy. Um, mm. Bain Marie, we have the equivalent in Italy, and so forth. So um, mm. there, there, there wasn't, apart from maybe use, or, you know, using a specific ingredient, i.e., chocolate, in savory dishes, there wasn't anything that was so groundbreaking in that respect. Um, the problems were in sometimes the jargon used because even though it was a recipe book it was very down to earth and down with the kids if you want so it used okay. a lot of slang terms and a lot of jargon that you needed to obviously convey as accurately as possible and the ingredients which weren't exactly a piece of cake to keep the analogy going yeah pun intended exactly But uh, was it published or that, was that just a project for you? It was just a project for me. I haven't um, submitted it to anyone. And uh, as far as I know, I don't think this book has ever been published in Italy. Um, mm. But it might have. I, I would have to double check that. Yeah. But um, when you took on the project, did you already consider yourself a foodie or did that sort of develop or come about with this book project? Um, it, this book, let's, let's say that this book project contributed to it. Um, I was already um, cooking to a certain extent because I needed to survive, obviously being a student. Um, yeah, feed yourself. Exactly. Okay. And you can't eat out every single evening because you don't have the money for it. Mm. Um, and surviving on takeaways is clearly a no-no. So um, I was already cooking for myself, but I, w I hadn't started, if you want, making it my major hobby, which is something that I do now. Um, so I didn't consider myself as a foodie as of yet. I've always been deeply interested in chocolate. Um, you might be 
interested to know that I always have chocolate biscuits for breakfast, and I could not imagine a breakfast that does not include chocolate biscuits, or indeed, I can... a biscuit that does not include chocolate. Um, I completely understand. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not allowed to have chocolate biscuits for breakfast because I have kids, but uh, oh, yeah, I, well, I, I probably see. might if I if I didn't. <laughs> um, but to me, a biscuit that does not have some sort of cocoa powder in it is not a biscuit um, and cannot be called yeah. a biscuit um, or a cookie if you want to be American. Um, yeah. So um, I have always, I mean, I, I, could, I couldn't probably go a couple of days without having a chocolate fix at some point. And um, whether that makes me a chocoholic or maybe just, I don't know, a gluttonous person, I don't know. But um, We won't the, judge it. No, exactly. At the time, it didn't bother me. I just wanted to do, to do something in translation that was related somehow to chocolate. Yeah. Um, your mother worked as a chef? Worked as a worked, chef. Worked, yeah. yes. Did she, I mean, did, did you learn a lot of recipes from her? Or did you cook with her when you were younger? Um, she tried to involve me when I was um, a kid and, if you want, a young adult, um, a teenager, but um, it wasn't as easy as she probably thought it would be. Um, my grandma cooks a lot. My mum was a cook and then she actually passed an exam and she became a trained chef. She worked in restaurants and in kindergartens, more than anything else. Um, and she would always cook at home. We would very rarely go out and eat at a restaurant. It was always my mom that cooked. Um, so I was always surrounded by food when I grew up. And I, I would always see my mom making tortellini, for instance, or making lasagna from scratch. But um, apart from occasionally contributing by maybe pouring some milk when she was ma in the door when she was making pizza, um, I didn't really help um, her much. Um, it was only a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, I think, when I actually started getting involved in cooking and baking myself, that then I started going back to her for advice and asking her yeah. for re recipes and what to do and what temperature does the oven need to be and how long to bake things for and so forth. Mm. And, and you never considered a career in cooking or food or um, I mean, not, not a main career probably? I did consider it because I get people telling me all the time, you should open a bakery, you should open a patisserie. But um, yeah. I think I would probably not enjoy it as much if I were to make it my main source of income. Um, mostly because as it stands, I have a bit of a problem because I collect cooking cookery books and um, cooking magazines, so I have, believe me, a lot, and I've just moved flats, so I can tell you, I had about five boxes just full of them. Oh, um, that's a lot. Yeah, it is. And, um, and I do cook and bake a lot, but I do it as a way of relaxing more than anything else. It helps mm -hmm. me to unwind, and I just like to do it in my spare time and try different recipes, try different cuisines. If I were to make it a job, I don't know whether I would still enjoy it. And that's why I haven't even tried for the time or yet to turn it, this hobby into a full-time activity. But you, you do have a blog um, yes. for your recipes. Do you post everything that you make? I mean, when it's successful, I suppose. Um, no, simply because um, I tend to make things 
more than once sometimes. So mm. I have a few cakes that my friends or my work colleagues might ask for, and then when I make them again, I don't obviously repost it on the blog. And sometimes I just make recipes for dinner. I make dinner from scratch more or less every day, and I don't necessarily post about it in the uh, in, on my food blog because it might be a very easy recipe sometimes, or it might yeah. just be. Um, a pasta dish or a salad, and I don't really see the point. Um, I usually tend to post recipes that mean something to me for various reasons. It might be because I have a funny anecdote linked to it, or mm-hmm. because um, um, it uses ingredient an ingredient that I've never tried before, and then I want to tell the world how I fared in using that specific ingredient. Or it might be because it's a new technique that I tried um, when I made shoe buns for the first time, for instance, I posted about it. Um, mm-hmm. Or when I made um, angel food cake, I posted about it because it was something new for me. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, I keep on making you hungry and I do, I, I do apologize about this. That's okay. <laughs> you kind of knew where you were putting yourself up for that. Exactly. That's, that's, Good. that's true. Um, so do you usually cook from recipes or do you like to invent things yourself or just see what's in the fridge and then make something of that or a bit of everything a bit of everything with baking yeah. i tend to work from recipes that are already already written down and maybe tweak them a little bit mm. simply because i have this innate fear that something might explode in the oven and then it'll just be <laughs> the whole kitchen will be covered in cake batter um yeah. and that's not pleasant especially yeah. because you, then you need to clean it obviously um but with other with cooking in general i can make things you know impromptu if needed um i do tend to i usually well what i do on a weekly basis is i create a shopping list um and plan the meals for the whole week which i found helps me to save money and to be a little bit yeah yeah, a little bit better organized um and what i normally do is i leaf through a couple of cooking books and or magazines and i jot down the recipes that I want to make so I know what ingredients I need and I don't buy more than I need and then I don't end up wasting that food. And um, But when it gets to actually cooking the recipe, I might change things, I might use a different ingredient or I might... Um, sometimes it says poach this and I'm like, no, I don't want to poach it, I'll roast it instead. Because um, I, yeah. I kind of, I think without, you know, being too, getting on my high horse or anything, I kind of know what goes with what, at least yeah. on very broad and general terms now, so I can kind of make it as I go. Um, but I still rely, if you want, on recipes to get at least an idea of what I'm making. Okay. Um, as a final question, uh, I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot with that, but uh, do you have a, a good foodie recommendation? Uh, it could be in, in Leeds or London or in Bologna or wherever, like a, a restaurant or something that that you've been to and you've loved or maybe that you would that you'd like to go to one day? Um, just one, maybe not. Um, I like to try different places, um, and I usually rely on TripAdvisor partly and with a pinch of salt because people tend to give five-star reviews as if it were candies to kids, and on word of mouth as well. Um, but just to give you an example, we found what we thought was the best Chinese restaurant in Leeds, and we mm-hmm. always went there. And then when I told my Chinese students at university that we always went there, they were like, no, 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 that's rubbish. You need to yeah. try this one instead. Um, and I was, I was got smacked because I'd been going there for about two to three years, and I still think it's a really valid and good restaurant. 
Um, and they just dismissed it um, by saying, no, you need to try this one instead. Um, so it's, I think it's very subjective as well, and that's probably the beauty sure. of it. Um, uh, we, I mean, we have, we have our Spanish, our Chinese, um, our Middle Eastern favorite places in Leeds, and when I last went to London, I contacted a couple of foodies I follow on Twitter, asking mm-hmm. for advice on the best places to go to, simply because... Rather than simply going on TripAdvisor, I think it's best to ask people who live there and who have actually... What they like. Yeah. Yes, what people that actually might have actually tried it, people that maybe are experienced in a particular um, cuisine, such as Middle Eastern, and then that person will clearly be able to tell me which one is the best Turkish restaurant to go. Um, to go to, sorry. So um, I don't really have a favorite place, um, but I do kind of like to try bits and pieces here and there. So you wouldn't say you have a, necessarily a favorite cuisine you're, you're like? No, um, I, I don't go to Italian restaurants, um, which I think can be expected. Well, you can do it yourself. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, because obviously I might not make everything um, that is part of the Italian repertoire, but um, I can make most of it. And I find it a bit of a waste of time and money when I go to a restaurant and then I start picking the food and tearing it apart and saying this pizza dough is not salty enough or this pasta is not cooked enough or this sauce is a little bit watery. So then um, for my peace of mind and the peace of mind of the people that I'm out with, I tend to not go out to um, Italian restaurants. But Spanish, French, yes, I'm all up for it. 